0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. And we will be taking your questions or your science-related questions on 11 8830702 or the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Happy Monday, doctor. How are you doing?
1: Oh, it's cold. Oh, my goodness, it's cold. I've, I've we've, seen we've the pictures. we got minus six degrees, and now I'm, I'm wandering around in the snow. Uh, it's fantastic, oh. but at the same time, boy, is it cold. Although we did have some fun last night, because, you know, when you've got two teenagers, two toboggans, 30 foot of rope, and uh, and you've just rebuilt a farm quad, uh, you know, uh, what do you do with it? Apart from put your teenagers in the toboggans, tie the ropes to the front, and tow it round a field at about 40 kilometers now which they found exhilarating and fun until they wiped out anyway
0: goodness so before we jump into the questions earlier on we were speaking about an incident that happened to myself um yesterday where our um son just ate a random mushroom that was growing in between the grass and the garden And uh, obviously, we rushed to the emergency room because you don't want to wait till something happens while you're trying to figure out if it's poisonous. So it got me thinking, how do you tell from a science perspective, if you don't have Google and you don't have the Internet and it is survival mode, what is safe to eat and what is not safe to eat? Already, we had somebody on Twitter saying, check what the birds and and the baboons are eating. Somebody on the WhatsApp line said check what the monkeys are eating but how can you tell if there are no animals in sight because some berries look edible and they're very poisonous some mushrooms look edibles. what what is the advice that you would give us
1: i would say don't put anything in your mouth that you don't know the provenance of or know what it is i remember very very clearly interviewing someone almost 10 years ago who had had to have a kidney transplant because he went foraging with some friends and they picked what they thought were these wild mushrooms and they took them home and fried them up and they thought they had the most delicious breakfast until they started throwing up and then they discovered that they had eaten something which was pretty bad Mm. and they all ended up in hospital and two of them ended up with renal you know kidney failure and he needed a transplant and i shudder every time i think of that that you know if you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. I, you know, I, I'm a bright guy. I could probably learn to tell the difference between what are safe and what are not, but I certainly wouldn't educate myself. I'd go with somebody who was very, very good, who could show me what was okay and what wasn't, at least until I felt able to recognise the good from the bad. So the bottom line is don't, don't, eat, don't eat anything like that until you really know what you're doing.
0: Um, so just similar to what you are saying, um, I heard a story yesterday while in the hospital visit, freaking out of a family where the dad had brought home some mushrooms and they all ate them within 24 hours. They were all in the emergency unit and they all died one by one. So some mushrooms, I understand, are so deadly that once it's been consumed, there's actually nothing you can do about it. It's too late.
1: They contain a range of different chemicals, some of them completely innocuous to us but not good for other wildlife. Some of them fine for wildlife, definitely not innocuous for us. And they can target a range of different systems. Some of the things that they produce will hit your nervous system and they will affect the way in which the brain works. Others will be damaging to the things that try to remove them from the body. The liver detoxifies a lot of things and therefore it tends to pick up a lot of these chemicals and try to metabolize them, and this can leave, lead to liver damage. And equally, the, the sensitive tissues in the kidney can be hit by some of these toxins as well. So there's a range of ways in which they can kill you. You have to be incredibly careful where this sort of thing is concerned.
0: Yeah, so safest thing, like you say, if you don't know, rather don't consume it. But I guess if you are stuck in the wild with nothing else to eat, hey, good luck to you. Make sure you don't well, fight Well, best your...
1: thing to do, right, <laughs> if you're stuck in the wild, you're going to die of thirst far sooner than you're going to die of starvation you've got plenty of reserves when it comes to energy days at least but you haven't got that reserve for water so the most high priority thing to do if you are lost somewhere is to find some safe water to drink Uh, that will definitely extend your life then you can worry about whether you want to chance the berries or not but the water is the critical thing to find first water and shelter
0: I got you there because, of course, the elements are the ones that can be dangerously hot during the day and dangerously cold at night. Uh, the lines are open: oh double one double eight three zero seven zero two, and the WhatsApp line: oh seven two seven zero two one seven zero two. We've got Chad in Johannesburg South. Hi, Chad. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks. And you? Good. Good. Um, so I learned some Scouts right? Um, like with regard to berries and edibles. Um, generally if you rub something on the back of your palm and you know, if there's any irritation after a few minutes, then generally that's an indication that something is either toxic or poisonous. Hmm. Doctor, is that accurate? I saw somebody else saying, if you want to know if a mushroom is, um, poisonous, is that you've got to smush it and then rub it at the back of your ear. And if it starts itching, it means it's poisonous.
1: Well, it, it may detect some of the things, but remember that some of these chemicals are released only when the things are digested or metabolized further in your body. So you can have some chemicals that are not nasty until they go through some rounds of of metabolism or breakdown in the body itself so that's also worth bearing in mind that wouldn't be disclosed by any kind of skin test and things that are irritants to your skin usually they irritate because they trigger the release of histamine which is the irritant chemical that defends your skin well that's not going to happen with all these chemicals that bind to your brain for example so i'd say that might be one guide but i certainly wouldn't um, bet my life on it
0: Okay, let's go to Tembile in Glen Vista. Hi, Tembile. Hi, Dr. Chris. Um, in the past year, I've he- heard of two people already who've suffered from motor neuron disease and sadly passed on. And unfortunately, it was on the both spectrum for the young person in mid-30s and uh, someone over 60. So my question was, is um, is it on the increase because I think the cause is not known. Is there anything we can do to prevent that occurrence? Because it's, it's just scary. I just I know already of two people. One, as I say, yeah. Then the, gradually they mm. lose function of that, and then that, and then that, and then the respiratory muscles, and then you know, and then they pass oh, on. Yes. So yeah, it's it's scary. Eh? Thank well, you for I'm that sorry question. to hear about
1: your fear. We're talking here about a condition called ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis which is also called motor neurone disease and it also goes by the name Lou Gehrig's disease after the sportsman Lou Gehrig who unfortunately got it. Now in some respects these diseases are becoming more common and the reason for this is that many of them are more common in older age groups. And as a population ages, in other words, on average, people in a population live longer, which in the majority of countries around the world, owing to better living conditions, better food, better accommodation, better water, fewer wars, better medicines, people are on average living longer and so as a result of living longer more people survive to be an age where these sorts of disease diseases of old age degenerative diseases do tend to increase in prevalence so in that respect they are becoming more common but that's a symptom of the success story of better living conditions in other respects There are some causes of these diseases which are genetic. They run in families and we can trace a history through a family and those are the ones that tend to cause a young presentation of these conditions. Many of them that we see that affect older people is unfortunately bad luck or a combination of genes and bad luck, but really you have to live long enough to get the condition. When you see very young people often there is something genetic behind their presentation and those sorts of conditions are not increasing because we aren't necessarily increasing the number of people who carry those genes. So I think the answer is that the conditions are becoming more common because we're better at diagnosing, detecting and picking them up. We're also seeing more people living long enough to get some of these conditions but on average I think the younger people with the genetic causes of them are not increasing appreciably and so the risk remains the same in that respect.
0: All right, thank you so much, Tembile, for that question. Uh, we've got a voice note. Hi, Dr. Chris, uh, it's Petracia. here. I just wanted to ask about the size of the manhood, uh, the men's thing, because I've seen a lot of adverts about the size. What, What, what is the normal range? Like, what is too small or too big uh, in terms of length and diameter? because I think maybe there's some kind of belief that I'm having too small or something like that. Is it diameter or girth? Please help me, Dr. Chris.
1: Well, girth is the circumference. So if you were to put a piece of string and uh, start in one place, measure all the way around and then bring your two fingers together, that's the distance in circumference. Diameter is if you were to, say, put a finger on one side, a thumb on the other and say, how far apart is my finger on my thumb? Yes. That's the diameter. People tend to use both terms interchangeably. Okay. But there, there is a range. In the same way that there is a human range of heights and foot sizes and... Uh, eye colours, there is a range of different anatomical proportions in that part of the body as well, just as there is for women. And everyone's a bit different. But the average goes from somewhere from about five inches, we're in imperial measures here, uh, I can't remember what that is in centimetres, through to about six and a half, seven. And and there are, of course, some people who are well beyond that, um, but they generally are featured in adult videos that are beyond the scope of this radio programme. So, really, the answer is that everything that works is regarded as normal, in the same way that there are short people and tall people, there are bigger people and smaller people. There is nothing that is normal, and if you're outside that particular very narrow range, you're abnormal, with the exception of some people who do have some structural problems or some very, very small bits of apparatus, which can often be caused by certain underlying conditions conditions but the bottom line is does it work for you and if it does work for you and your partner there's nothing to be worried about
0: so is it a medical term when they call it a micro the p word yeah
1: yeah micropenis, and this this is this can happen in some people who have underdeveloped genitalia there can be other reasons why people may have this happen to them and there are things that can be done for people if they have that problem but most people If you ask them where on a line they would put themselves in terms of how big or small they are, most people would put themselves as, I'm too small, Hmm. just because they feel a bit bashful. But if you then look at the whole population, you'll find that most people are spot on the average, exactly as you would expect in a normal distribution in a population. Most people have got average bits and pieces, and there's nothing at all abnormal about them.
0: All right, we've got another question. Please ask the doctor what is and how does one deal with parasitophobia or delusional parasitosis
1: Mm. Um, this is quite common and people will feel that they've got things crawling around under their skin or they will uh, feel that there's, uh, they're, they're worried about germs and touching things and things like that. It's actually quite common, and it can be very, very disabling. If you develop this kind of thing, which is kind of a manifestation of obsessive-compulsive disorder, where people will worry about touching things because they're worried about picking up contagion and they feel they have to wash obsessively and that kind of thing, otherwise something horrible is going to happen, If you have those sorts of symptoms or a history of that sort of thing happening, you can be helped. And it's absolutely important that you don't suffer in silence because it can be very disabling. Some of these people who who have uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders will find that it completely encroaches on their life to the point where they're so miserable because they can't live a normal life, because they're bound by these rituals and certain behaviours which lead to them um, having to practice these rituals, otherwise something awful will happen to their mind there are things that can be done and it's very important not to suffer in silence and if you have these sorts of delusions or these sorts of things and and it's a new thing or it's something you've had for a while but it's beginning to get control of you rather than the other way around you must talk to somebody because they can get you some help and that can range from simple talking about it and some simple strategies to help you to come to terms with it through to uh, medications in certain circumstances that can also help with few side effects to help to give people a bit more control over the problem.
0: And I'm sure there are many people who suffer in silence because they're called all sorts of names for having what look mm. like looks like irrational fears that don't make sense. Um, but there is help that you can get. Um, here is another voice note.
1: Hi, I'm the doctor. Just uh, yeah. a quick one.
0: Why do we enjoy um, music more when it's too loud? Mm, (laughs) nice one and some people enjoy it more when the bass is significantly high
1: normally it's people who go to parties who don't want to talk to each other that uh, (laughs) enjoy the loud music because i'm I'm, i must be getting fuddy-duddy or something i went to a party on saturday evening to to just celebrate christmas in my village and it was so loud everyone was complaining that they couldn't hear each other talk because everyone wanted to socialise and you think, well, why don't the organisers who are similarly complaining, why don't they just turn it down a bit but I've lost count of the number of parties I go to where this is the case and the, the band empty the room, because not because the music's no good but because it's just too loud and I think it's because the people who tend to do the music love their equipment and love making the music sound good and loud they're not trying to talk to each other and they often position themselves right at the back of the room so they get the full room experience when they're monitoring and setting up the levels, whereas when they're the poor people who are right near the stage or near the speakers who are getting deafened and can't talk to each other and are trying to talk to each other, that's when you really notice. So I, th- I think it's a combination of factors. But we, we like loud music for a range of reasons. We, we like that the fact that the bass makes people move in sync. There's something about synchronised movement that makes us bond. It is not a coincidence that if you look at armies, they practise marching and they make everyone march in sync. It's not a coincidence that when you look at some birds they will fly in a formation. They are synchronizing. It's not a coincidence that if you look at mosquitoes mating the males and females will synchronize their wing beats in order to communicate that I fancy you. Mm. You're giving me a buzz as it were. And so as a result of this synchrony plays a really important part in bonding between individuals but also as groups and to make people synchronize you can dance and how better to do that than to give everyone a nice throbbing bass beat that they can dance to and we spoke to a researcher a couple of weeks ago actually who's discovered some frequencies of sound which if those are present in music make people about 20 percent more likely to dance so they were doing experiments at um, various university campuses where they were playing music and at various random points in the music turning on these sounds that people can't actually hear but they generally feel because they cause vibrations that are picked up by vibration sensors in your viscera and they made the people dance up to 20 percent more when they were turned on these sounds so look out for people dancing frantically for no apparent reason in the future and you'll know that they're being subjected (laughs) to these infrasounds that make people want to move but that's why we like loud music because it makes us all dance and move with the beat which makes us do that all at the same time and it's a bonding moment and humans are a social species and they want to do that
0: Interesting one, indeed, and definitely something to think about. Artie in Pretoria on WhatsApp says, can you please ask Dr. Chris, why is it difficult treating viral diseases both in humans and plants?
1: Well, the reason is that um, since the antibiotic era was ushered in about 100 years ago, and we were able to start taking drugs to kill bacteria, you can say, well, why do antibiotics work against bacteria but not against viruses? Well, what they're doing is exploiting differences that the bacterial cells have in them and on them compared to our cells. So it's relatively easy because they're very different things as entities, the bacteria, to us, to make drugs that will find something that is different between them and us and target it, and that destroys the bacteria selectively. Viruses, on the other hand, are just parasites, They are nothing more than an infectious bag of genetic material. So they rely on our own cells to grow and make more viruses. So therefore, you've got to find something that's specific to something that is already using most of your cells in some way, most of your cellular machinery, to grow itself. So it's much harder to find things that are different about a virus compared to uh, a human cell compared with bacteria so it's been much harder to develop antivirals compared to antibiotics but In the modern era, we are doing that more and more. And you think about HIV came along. We may not have a vaccine for it yet, despite 40 years of trying. But what we do have is a whole slew of very good antiretroviral drugs now, which have converted what would be a lethal disease into a chronic controllable condition. The same thing for hepatitis C infection. And just in the last couple of years, since COVID was discovered, we now have drugs that are unique and specific for that kind of coronavirus, which target things about the virus that... Unpicking the molecular clockwork of how it works in our cells has enabled us to do. We can now go for those targets. So it's getting there, but it is much more difficult to do than the old days of antibiotics, where structurally bacteria are so different to us, it was easy pickings, relatively speaking, to to kill them off.
0: All right, uh, let's take a last one very quickly. Christine in Pretoria, hi. Hello. Um, I just wanted to find out how does uh, do thermal energy work, um, and what are the um, if I just what can, uh, how can it be used actually, and and would it be very useful? Um, thanks. That's all I want to ask. Thanks. All right, Bye. geothermal energy. Thank you so much, Christine, in
1: Pretoria. Hi, Christine. The bottom line is that the inside of the Earth is very hot, and if you were to go to the core, it would be nearly six thousand degrees C. And a lot of that heat works its way up to the surface, and there are some places where it's closer to the surface and easier to access than others. And the rationale of this is, if you put something down into the interior of the Earth, which can recover some of that heat and bring it back up, you've got a supply of heat, and there's so much heat locked away in there that the planet's losing heat at the rate of terawatts, and and we're not consuming anything like it at the same amount of or same rate of energy. So you basically exploit the heat of the planet to heat something up, and that gives you a supply of heat, which is either very useful for keeping people warm houses warm or water warm for all kinds of processes or you can make it so hot that you can turn it into steam and then you've got a way of making electricity under certain circumstances so that's the simplest uh, application and then there are other ways that people are exploiting this now with for instance old mine shafts that have flooded the top of the mine shaft will have water at a different temperature and density than the bottom it's a tiny difference but you can exploit that tiny difference with say a heat exchange pump and you can recover the energy and dump the cold water water back into the very bottom of the mine and in that way you can provide heat to lots of houses. So there's a range of ways you can do this but geothermal really means hot rocks. Put water onto some hot rocks and it makes the water hot and you can use it.
0: All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much Dr. Christmas.